0: Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. If you or someone you know has been affected by childhood sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis 24 Hour Helpline is 1800 777888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we talk to Maggie Oliver, who's best known as the former detective constable in the Greater Manchester Police. Maggie was lead investigator and whistleblower in the Rochdale sexual abuse scandal. While in the GMP, Maggie worked on two major child sex trafficking operations, Operation Augusta and later Operation Spam, more commonly known as the Rochdale scandal. While working these cases, Maggie witnessed the continuous failures of senior officers to record the children's allegations, prosecute the serial offenders and protect young victims. In 2017, Maggie featured in the BBC documentary, The Betrayed Girls, along with working as a programme consultant on a BAFTA award-winning BBC drama called Three Girls that was watched by over 9 million viewers in May of the same year. Maggie recently set up a charity called the Maggie Oliver Foundation. You can read Maggie's story in her recently published book, Survivors, My Fight to Expose the Rochdale Scandal. Maggie, can you tell us about your experience of the Rochdale Scandal and how did you get involved with the
1: whole thing? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on. It's lovely to speak to you all. I think I was unusual when I joined the police. I was a 41 year old woman, Um, I had four kids. Nobody would have ever put me as a police officer, but I joined um, and I wanted to do child protection. Very quickly realized that as a police officer, you mainly deal with the offenders. And my skills were always with victims, with vulnerable people, because I'm just an ordinary woman. I joined the police to make a difference, to look after people's fundamental human rights to uphold my oath of attestation, you know, to protect the vulnerable, to uphold the law. All those things are what I believed as a police officer I was doing. And actually I believed that for a long time after I joined. When did I change for you, Maggie? After the death of Victoria. In two thousand and four. Victoria had been a young, a little girl, actually. She was about seven and her mum died of cancer. And there was five children and they were all taken into care. And Victoria went downhill. And and when she became a young teenager, she was being groomed and then sexually abused by gangs of Pakistani men. But she still had some contact with her grandma social workers and people that were meant to be protecting and knew what was happening, but failed in their duty to protect. And she died. Around the same time, there was a documentary team following a team of social workers in Yorkshire, and they found this same problem was really evident in Keithley in South Yorkshire. Many young children being groomed and sexually abused by gangs of of Pakistani men. What I believe now, is that Greater Manchester Police believed, as did all police forces, that there would be a great public outcry about this. They put together an operation called Operation Augusta, of which I was part, to look at whether we had a similar problem in and around Manchester. And within the space of a couple of weeks, we had dozens of children that social workers were saying were being sexually abused on an industrial scale, and that they'd been trying to get the police to do something about it for a long time. So Maggie, you're saying that the police were actually ignoring all of these cases? What happened was, after a few months, we'd gathered quite a lot of evidence. I delivered, together with another colleague who was on the job, a report to the, the powers that be in Greater Manchester Police, saying we had this problem. After just a few months, we had 97 offenders and we had dozens of children, and we needed extra resources. GMP greater Manchester police decided to resource it with a full team from the major incident team so all that information that we'd gathered then had to be put onto this special computer system called the home system and that took two or three months we were being properly resourced then with a full team of detectives to run a proper job. Mikey did I read that your husband was very sick at the time? My husband was terminally ill with with bowel cancer. I'd spent about a year, a year and a half on Operation Augusta. And in his last couple of months, I went off work to, to nurse him. He, he was really very, very poorly. I went off work in the full knowledge that we'd done our bit. We proved and we knew that this job was going on. The chief constable and all the, the top officers in Greater Manchester Police accepted that. I came back to work after Norman had died to find that the job had just been buried. Nobody arrested. The children just abandoned, left to their own devices. You know, I knew what these kids were living through. I couldn't make any sense of it. I tried to get answers from everybody, but I had no paperwork. I had no evidence. The whole database had been closed down. I had no access to it. I was powerless to do anything. To be honest, I was in a bad place. My husband had just died, I'd got four kids. And I was working on the major incident team, so I was predominantly working on murders, gang-related shootings. I did witness protection work. I worked on kidnapping, so I worked on serious crime. I didn't work in child protection. It never left me.
2: Maggie, how long after Augusta was it before you ended up working on the Rochdale case?
1: 2010, I was called into a meeting with uh, some big bosses and said that they had another job in Rochdale. And it was an identical job to what I'd worked on five years before, which became Operation Span. You know, as far as I was concerned, I wasn't putting myself in that position of failing kids. I told them that I didn't want to be involved. Operation Span, in large part, began because GMP were doing a routine review of the property system, the exhibits, and the officer doing it uh, discovered that there was a fetus in the the property system, and no consent had been obtained from the child whose baby it was. The family still didn't know that the police had got it about two years after the termination. I finally agreed to join Operation Span, but I was given cast-iron guarantees that there would not be a repeat of Operation Augusta. I was asked if, first of all, I could tell the family um, and then get consent to try to find out who was responsible for the pregnancy, although we already knew, really. And as well as that, to bring on board her sister, who had been sexually abused by the gang, but shockingly had also been arrested on suspicion of being a madam, even though she was only a child. For that victim to put their trust in you and tell you what has gone on, that is a, a monumental responsibility. It's a privilege as well. I watched Three Girls again. Just be- I'd seen it before, but just because I knew
0: we were doing this interview and I watched The Betrayed Girls, and it must be the yeah. times that we're in and the fact that it got my undivided attention. It's still with me. I am so upset at the volume that you had to deal with. And I'm not making, uh, diminishing anybody's abuse, but to have to deal with it on the scale you are dealing with it on, is just unthinkable that the country
3: weren't up in arms. That's kind be- of where the energy has, has gone. The fact that the majority of the men, or well not all the men were Pakistani, was that a big issue in why they didn't want to go near it? Because of the racial tension?
1: I've thought of this long and hard over the years. My absolute opinion is that that is part of the issue. Those in authority were frightened of being accused of being racist. Victims of sexual abuse from many backgrounds are failed in respect to the grooming gangs. You know, the reason they're targeted by these gangs is because they are vulnerable. A lot of them were from quite difficult backgrounds. Politicians and and all those at the top, they think that these kids aren't worth protecting.
0: The only explanation has to be personal involvement of some sort. It's the only thing that makes sense. It explains why it's been and still is so hard for us to get justice, to get support for victims, to get people to see this for what it is, to open the hearts to what it is, young children being abused.
3: What we have found is a lot of the people in the top jobs all come from private education,
1: a lot of them from boarding schools, a lot of them are abused themselves. And the yeah. shame has gone in. Yeah. They're holding each other's secrets. There was a panorama on last year all about private boarding schools. No. From, it's exactly what you've just said. One man, um, he was a boy in a, in a boarding school. He was sexually abused by the masters. And really, it, it really made me think about that, that virtually every organisation, like the police, like politicians, like the Home Office, all of those people at the top of those organizations, many of them have been through the private public school system. Yeah. And if they've been abused as a child, it kind of normalizes it. And in a way, I've wondered whether they think that this is a you know, rite of passage, or it didn't do me any harm. So they don't talk about it and they don't disclose it. And that means that they're less inclined to fight for children today.
2: Yeah, i do think it's a combination of that thing about didn't do me any harm that could be part of it. a lot of it, it's a lot more difficult for men to speak up than women yeah yeah they don't have the ability like we have to connect with our emotions no. and you know feelings and there's so much shame and you yeah. know this old culture belief be a man men don't cry all this if they have buried it, I don't think it would be delivered. No, I, I don't know if even half of them would even have a, any connection with the fact it did happen. It could be a very distant memory that's going to stay exactly where it is. That mm. takes away their ability to connect with victims or to understand. Yeah.
1: If you are in that kind of environment where it is normalized, in a public school, the boys who have been abused in those settings, don't know, maybe they communicate with each other.
2: I think that's highly unlikely then, because the shame you carry and the, the holding the secrets, and I don't care if you're in groups of thousands, like we were right. in a family of 10, there's no way we ever spoke or shared secrets.
1: It doesn't mean yeah. you don't
2: have some kind of awareness, it wouldn't be a
3: conscious awareness, and there are absolutely no sharing of stories. You don't actually, well we didn't know for a long, long time, until we started writing the second book, exactly how we were impacted. We didn't understand all the hidden impacts of it. You have to be willing to go in there and find out. Paula, we didn't even know we were each
2: being abused. Yeah. We did, but we didn't. We could swear blind we didn't know. But at the same time, when we were writing our first book, we realized, should Jesus, like, he'd click his fingers and we'd say, oh, God, I hope he doesn't want me. Which implies he could want somebody else. Which means on some level you did know but we would have gone to a grave swearing and we
0: didn't. In our personal experience, the older we got, the harder it was to keep the abuse a secret. It seeps out of you somehow, maybe not even in words, but in your behaviours, your behaviours get more dangerous, mainly to you, to yourself. But when you look at the statistics of both victims and perpetrators of sexual abuse, it's highly likely that there's politicians, guards, judges, solicitors that are either victims or abusers or both. And although victims of abusers can be found in all walks of life, it can cause great harm if they're in a position to make decisions that impact on our lives. And then that they're making those decisions from a very damaged or toxic place.
2: Do you feel anything has changed since you spoke out?
1: I do feel that we are going into a time where it's more acceptable to talk out about it. I think there's less of a judgment now of survivors of sexual abuse. I mean, if there is anything that I'm kind of proud, well, I am proud of it. It's that from when I started talking, the girls who were, were victims of the grooming gangs particularly were absolutely judged as bad, you know, as bad kids, as being complicit in their abuse, that they didn't deserve to be protected. Me speaking out about that and actually working on Three Girls and bringing that to the mass attention of the public, I hear all the time now that there is not that same judgment of them. Women like you who have been brave enough to speak out are the ones who have paved the way, I think, to move forward, June. You know there is complicity at the tops, but I always call it willful blindness. I do still think there's a whole combination of reasons in that those at the top think that the children who are being abused are not their children. I always used to say to the Chief Constable Peter Phi, who I actually haven 't got a good word to say about because he failed on every level i've heard him on the telly saying he is a good Christian and he has got three daughters, and my response to him is well. Why did you think it was all right to turn a blind eye to all these kids? You know, if this was your daughter, is it all right for a 12 year old to make a lifestyle choice, to have sex with dozens of men in a gang, absolutely drunk out of the school? It's not about doing your job, it's actually about what's right and what's wrong. And if you can't see that this is so wrong, that this should should haunt you for the rest of your days that you've allowed this to carry on.
2: Maggie, what was the final straw? What made you leave the police
1: force? It eventually walked off the job because I'd spent 18 months going to everybody. Out of almost 30 children on a list for Operation Spam, the only ones that came on board and talked about the abuse that they'd been subjected to were the girls that I brought on board. Every other one was pushed away. Naively, I thought it was one lazy officer who wasn't doing the job. My initial reluctance that caused me months of sleepless nights was you know I don't want to cause colleagues a problem but when I had a senior officer saying to me basically that they agreed with what I was saying but that I should calm down because in the police senior officers make decisions and I was just a DC you're a detective you do as you're told and if you can't do that you're in the wrong job and I thought well maybe I'm in the wrong job, but I am not walking away from this a second time. Everybody knew this was going on. Even the Home Office apparently sent a circular out in 2008 telling police forces not to investigate these grooming gangs. Maggie, why would they do that? To investigate and prosecute gangs of paedophiles is a really resource intensive job to to open up. And if the kids themselves are not coming to the police and telling us that they've been raped, why are the police going to open that box? So let's leave that lid on. Let's pretend it doesn't happen. And if the shit hits the fan, then we will have to open it up. So Maggie, what did they do to make it difficult for you on the Rochdale case? We had an analyst for a couple of weeks. They took an analyst off. And bear in mind, you've got dozens of paedophiles. You've got dozens of offenders. You've got dozens of children being abused. If you don't have an analyst, you have not got a cat in health chance of knowing what's going on. They tried to minimise the job right from day one. They resourced that job with a team of people who had been on a computer crime unit because they had nowhere else to put them. Well, it's like me. You wouldn't put me on CCTV because I can't do it. But equally, somebody who's going to be trying to engage with most vulnerable children in our society, if you really want to do it, you put the right people on it. It's all these little subtle signs. So I don't feel there was ever a will there. It was a, a token job to do half a job. And then they wanted to portray it as this phenomenal success. My last day at work, I, I ended up you know, unconscious on the floor. I couldn't sleep, I, I couldn't eat, I couldn't make any sense of it. I've come a long way from that day. And most of what I've learned, I wish I hadn't learned because I now don't believe yeah. it was one lazy officer. I now believe it was those at the top of the police, of the government, of the Home Office, who wanted to to silence the children. And the way to do that was to discredit them, was to blame them, was to ignore them and make it highly unlikely that they would put their trust in the police. And that situation actually hasn't changed very much.
0: So Maggie, what are you going to do now, now you're not in the police force anymore? What's next for you?
1: I've kind of become somewhere for people to go when they don't know where else to go. I haven't got all the answers, but I know what the problems are. It's not about the court process. It's about being heard and having a voice. Now set up the foundation to try and build a picture of current practice of how Children and people are being failed today. Still, I don't know if you've had a look at my foundation website because yeah. I've just started a survivor story section. Right. You know, many survivors tell me what's happened to them, but sometimes to share it, even anonymously, helps them feel that they've been heard, and it helps others who are going through the same things. I wasn't sexually abused, but I've learned a lot through my journey. Through Through listening to people like you, the vast majority of people who contact me are completely isolated, and that in itself is what what has allowed the authorities to get away with what they've got away with for such a long time, because it has been a secret that people have carried. And I want to gather evidence of how many times this is happening, how it's not gone away, and how it hasn't actually really changed the two things kind of help each other you know gathering the evidence gives me more power when I go into arenas with politi- chief constables that not that they want to listen <laughs> yeah. because it hasn't really changed a lot we still we get you know words and oh. empty words well, the problem is getting others who are in those positions to make those changes to make them and that's why I won't shut up really
3: I think you're up against what everybody in every country across the globe is up against. Yeah. Will to want to make a change, and you know the saddest thing about it is the lack of understanding of the cost to society by not dealing with it, because you're not escaping it. It's just coming out in different forms and different shapes. Yeah. And they just see
1: it's so big. You, you asked me immediately about the the ethnicity. In a way, I, I've trodden a tightrope because for me, this is not about race, ethnicity, religion. For me, this is about the law. And if a man of 50 or 60 years old has sex with a 12, 13, 14 year old child, he's a paedophile and I don't care where he comes from. There are good people in every community and there are bad people. For me, it's about right and wrong, the law and justice it's not about hate and violence. This is about what's right and wrong for me. I want people to come on side with me and and prevent another generation having to go through the same. Somebody does it, they are held to account. They go to prison for many, many years. And the charge with rape, not with trafficking, where they're out of prison in three or four years and free to walk around the local astra and bump into the girl he got pregnant when she was just 13. That is horrific. So that's what makes me do what I'm doing and trying to make a difference, which is exactly what you're saying, Paula, is if if you intervene early enough, you can prevent victims perhaps losing their own children, turning to alcohol, turning to drugs, to hide from all the pain that's there. Yeah. I'm trying to get in there early to give them help, to give them support, to let them know they're not alone. And, and actually I want donations because it's one step at a time. So a national phone line for survivors of abuse, of all kinds of sexual abuse is one thing. The other side is my value. I class myself an activist now. I went public and I thought I'd go to prison. I, you know, I had been threatened as a police officer. I've been told you must not speak about this. It's confidential. And that's what made me ill, knowing there was this disconnect between my conscience and what I knew to be my job. I joined to make a difference, to protect the vulnerable, not to turn a blind eye and cover up for the people at the top of the police who were not doing what they're paid to do. And I didn't believe that the general public would think that that was okay. So I wanted... People to know that I had done my best. I wanted my kids to know that I had stood up and spoken out. But when I did that, bear in mind Peter Parry was the chief constable then. I sent him war and peace about what was going on. I begged and pleaded with him to speak to me. He refused. I went to the Home Office. I went to the Children's Commissioner. I went to the i. It was then the IPCC. Nobody wanted to listen. And finally, I collapsed at work and I thought whatever it takes, I am going to speak out. I really felt that at some point, the country would know what had gone on. And all I wanted was for my kids to know that I had tried, that I had said the truth. And when I did that, that was a scary, scary time in my life. Maggie, when you went public with the story, did you get into trouble? I never got arrested and and I think that is because I went public. I think that right. was my saving grace because I had faced up to the fear, in fact, the terror, that I would go to prison. If the choice. Right. was, Don't tell the truth and protect yourself. I'm the kind of person I couldn't live with that. You have to have the truth before you can bring about change. Maggie, in the
0: drama, it looked like you were the only one to stand up against this. I, I was the only, is only that, one. Uh, like yeah, Even today,
1: the- is there nobody that worked with you that, backed you up or no no and most of my colleagues actually are, are very supportive it's just the fear factor that goes with that decision you know I lost my job I lost my income I lost my home yeah. it made me seriously ill and bear in mind I'd, I'd buried my husband i buried my little granddaughter that this two-year period I'm more it, it's damaged me you know I'm a different person than I was but here in the chief constable speak after I'd done my programme and saying that I was a woman who became too emotionally involved. (laughs) I'd lost, yeah, I'd lost the plot, Um, I was bereaved. You know, misogynistic comments. I've met this officer many times. Well, you bloody haven't, you've never met me once to this day. It was shoot the messenger. But for whatever reason, I wriggled through the barriers and I have been heard. After 15 years, And after I spoke out in Betrayed Girls, there was an independent review put together. And that has absolutely corroborated everything I said about Augusta. So they can no longer say I was making it up. You know, when Peter Farr is saying I'm a liar, well, you know what, saying that about me, he actually fired me up. And he made me think, how bloody dare you? How dare you?
2: Do you have any regrets about speaking out?
1: I regret I had to do it. Would I do the same again? I would have to. I cared about what I did and I cared about those kids. And I'm not gonna apologize for that. If I didn't stand up for what I believe, I am as bad as them. I want accountability. I want him to lose his pension because why should he be knighted? Why should he be walking out the door and into the sunset when he has failed thousands of children? And yeah. there are people like him right through the country. And that is why I'm part of the ICSA National Abuse Inquiry. That is why I've, I've been supporting girls in Rochdale. And we've got a case before the Supreme Court. I have become somebody who can't somehow let this go until we have that accountability. Because if he knew 10 years ago, that if he didn't support these kids that were being abused, that he would lose his job, that he'd lose his pension, that he might go to prison. He would have made very different decisions 10 years ago. If you roll that out all the way across the country to every police force, these grooming gang trials have been everywhere. You know, Not only Rochdale and Manchester and Huddersfield and Oxford and Telford and, and Middlesbrough and now in Barrow and everywhere. That is thousands and thousands of children that have been failed. Why should I lose my job as a police officer? And yet chief constables turn a blind eye to generations of children being sexually abused. You know, they picked on the wrong one when they picked on me and called me a woman who lost (laughs) the plot because I fucking haven't. (laughs) I'm getting there. You know, I do this for nothing, Um, God help me. But if we're gonna take this to the next level, we can't grow to the extent that we need to unless we get funding. So I want people to support the foundation. Everything we've done has been through donations up to now. I've got some brilliant trustees. We are building, I hope, an army of people like me
3: just you said earlier on, you're just an ordinary woman.
1: I think you're anything but an ordinary woman. <laughs> I've just got a big gob. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: It's easy when you're speaking the truth. My memory's not great anymore. I forget names. When you're speaking the truth, you don't have to remember anything. It That's is it, just exactly. there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? If the idea
3: is to get help and get people on board, I think the most important thing, especially when you're dealing with children who are being groomed by these gangs, is for people to understand exactly what grooming is, how it happens. Why it happens, and for instance, when you're watching programs like the Three Girls, and for people who have never been abused or haven't dealt with and are not thinking about that, people can't understand why the children kept going back. Now, if you don't understand grooming, I can understand why you don't understand why the children keep going back. So, trying to explain that in a public arena is really important because that's what gets people to understand that these are victims and it's not a lifestyle choice and they're not out
1: there having sex and making pornography they're being raped i do feel that that has been my contribution to this cesspit really i I think i think my contribution has been to try to educate people who didn't understand and i worked on three girls for four years and i always say it's a drama there is a lot in there that it hasn't been said it doesn't go nearly far enough and that's why i wrote my book but what it does do i feel is explain grooming First of all, the key is that the abusers identify children who are vulnerable to start with, because in the grooming gangs, many of the children had very little, maybe they didn't have very much money, they didn't have a mobile phone, they didn't have a lot of excitement, affection, love, they were craving attention, and somebody coming along and showing them a little bit of attention and kindness to start with is what? hooks the child in. If anybody listening wants to read some survivor stories, I'm starting to share real survivor stories. On my website now, the Maggie Oliver Foundation, what feeds through it all the time, abuse doesn't just happen from nowhere. When I'm doing the interviews of, of the victims, they always say that they were the friends, that the men were friends. And it starts off very often that way. In all these grooming gang particularly they were being taken to a kebab house they were being given free food there was a warm room to go and sit in they'd watch telly and then bit by bit you know a can of coke could become vodka and then it'd be a bottle of vodka and then it'd be pornographic films on the telly and then it'd be a ride out in the car to somewhere one girl like to london she'd never been to london in her life and then she's trapped with a man in a car in a house very vulnerable, doesn't have any money, doesn't know how to get home. But the alcohol is a big part of it because they can't remember very much. They will then often drink so much alcohol so they don't have to be in in that environment. That's just the grooming gangs. It's just very clever manipulation of a child. Um, And the children that I've supported, you know, some of the Augusta girls are in touch with me now, but the Rochdale girls, some of them I've, I've helped them get compensation, we're we'll go into the Supreme Court with the case. They now are 10 years further on. They've got children of their own. And they look back and they now can see how they were groomed and sexually abused. But when they're 12 and 13 and 14, they see these men as their friends. It's a process. And by the time they realize what's going on, to then talk about it, they're usually out of the abuse. It's not a subject they want to talk about. They want to hide it from themselves because it's so painful. You know, the men walk away scot-free. And that's why when you get children like Amber and Ruby, who put their whole trust in me and told me what was going on for the court, that is a privilege. They are like gold dust and they deserve to be protected, to be supported right through the system and way beyond. And they are not system, pulls them in, chews them up, spits them out and leaves them on their own and that is unforgivable. It is unforgivable.
3: Maggie do you think in the current climate do you think the police are any more invested or involved in actually trying to prosecute
1: these cases? I think there has been some progress on on Operation Span for instance even the man who got Ruby pregnant where we had a fetus and we he was a 40 odd year old married man with children of his own even having it on a plate her giving video interviews naming him identifying him dna from the fetus even he was not charged with rape and he was out of prison within about three years and Mm. he is now walking around rochdale free as a bird And she bumped into him in unsupervised contact with another little child about, it's about three or four months ago now. We reported it to the safeguarding board. They didn't really want to know anything because he's no longer on license. That to me is not justice. And he actually was responsible for raping many other children, but he was only charged with sexual activity with a child. And the reason for that often is because these charges, those offences are easier to prove. In court, right, and and when you have many many children saying the same thing, what the authorities are doing is picking one a token charge, but the result is that the court doesn't hear all that evidence. The sentencing isn't adequate for what they are actually guilty of, and um, I mean I'm working closely with Harriet Wistrich and the Centre for Women's Justice, and they are phenomenal in dealing with violence against women. Harriet actually won the case. I don't know if in Ireland you've heard of the black cab rapist. No. He was a taxi driver who raped probably hundreds and hundreds of women down in London. And and he was charged with a couple of rapes. There were many, many other women who he had raped, but the police and the CPS chose to just charge him with a, a token number and he was due to be released two or three years ago. Some of the women whose rapes he hadn't been convicted of or even charged with were represented by Harriet, at the Centre for Women's Justice in court, and he was kept in custody. But that is common. It's only when you start to look at the detail, like I do, that you see where those injustices are. You'll know your own cases inside out but the public in general think if a man rapes a 12-year-old child he'll go to prison for 25 years and they're shocked when i say no he was out after three or four years even when we brought a case
3: against our father one at the beginning of this you're not very clear when you're asked to give your statement you're always in shock you're in trauma you haven't dealt with your stuff and you have to give a statement so even what you're saying is a very minor amount of abuses considering how many years you get abused for. So when the three of us gave our statements, it didn't matter how many counts we gave. He still only got charged on a token number of them. Which rapes does he not pay for? And that's exactly what happens in every case.
0: The problem with the consecutive sentencing gives them free reign. They may as well carry on. They're not decentifying anybody. They're actually part of the problem because once you rape somebody, you may as well carry on. You're only gonna pay for one of them.
1: It's just so wrong. It, the devil is in the
2: detail. It's the same rules apply for murder. Like, if you can you murder somebody and get one free,
1: or are no. you charged
2: with two murders?
1: No, it, it's different. And you no, know, if you murder two people or five people, you go to prison, usually for life. A domestic murder, very often, if it hasn't attracted an awful lot of attention, you know, they can be out with eight within eight or nine years. You get more for fraud than you do for raping a child very often. And there are
2: kind of things you need to highlight. To listen to that is quite sickening. People that do care don't know what to do. It's very, very uncomfortable. It's not a nice subject. You don't sit down and have a drink and have a chat about sexual abuse. We have the very same issue as you. People don't want to know. There's four sisters in our family. He was charged with three of them. Cause one of them was so much older. Like she's 10 years older than me. So she had no collaboration, whereas we were able to say, no, we witnessed or we heard or we seen or whatever. Whereas my older sister, she didn't have that. And then she was told really, you know, look, don't worry about it, he's going to get charged anyway. And even if he did admit to you, it's not going to make a difference. Like it made a difference in her life.
1: It is like murder. I fully understand that. And in my experience, the abuse is horrific. In itself you never recover from it but when those meant to protect you fail you as well that is where much further damage is done the difference is that takes away
3: all your hope people order than your abuser are still trying to damage you or not help you or not support you, you yeah. actually see the world the way you did when you were being abused, as in what's the yeah. point? Nobody cares. I can never get out of this. I'll never get over this. If you don't get yeah. anything external to intervene in your life, then you yeah. can't feel like it's a life sentence.
0: Yeah, because when we went to court with my father and the sentence he got was seven and a half years, he ended up doing five or something, wasn't it Paula? Yeah. I that was absolutely disgraceful. But Joyce and Paula terrific. were saying to me, you know It's great that he got any sentence at all, but I wasn't consoled with that. It took years before I accepted
1: it. It's horrific. In Australia, they're looking to send a paedophile to prison if convicted for life. Now, I don't know what life will be, but even that word suggests the magnitude of what they're doing. Part of the recovery is an acknowledgement that what happened is seen as wrong in, in society we've interviewed a couple of victims who have said that until they heard a sentence called
0: out they didn't realize it was that serious they themselves doubted how serious it was until they heard the judge saying it and then they felt vindicated they felt heard but it was afterwards then that really did pay dividends
1: yeah but you're right it does matter the sentence. I think for a victim of sexual abuse, the sentence is a public acknowledgement that what has happened is unacceptable and it can never undo what's happened to you, can it? You you can never undo that. The abusers often convince you that they're invincible,
0: they're unstoppable and nobody would listen to you. There's lots of things tied into the power struggle that goes on when you get your sentence because you start thinking oh my gosh he's not that strong he can be beaten somebody did believe me but maggie what do you do for your own mental health like you're an absolute godsend and your experience and knowledge is irreplaceable and actually gives great power to this battle that we're that we're in and I yeah. just think, thank God
3: for you, but I would be concerned about you because...
1: Yeah, you I am know, losing my marbles now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's <There's> a lot <laughs> to hold. Nobody should do this on their own. It is too hard. You're trying to hold everybody else's pain as well as your own and then try work out of it. That's too much. Seriously, what do you do like, to offset
0: this, the anxiety of living with this knowledge? Like, You have information and experience that most victims would never have how do you live with that and how
1: do you balance bring balance into your life so i think i've lost some of that and it has damaged me it's more than a full-time job and i do want to next year i want a bit of time back for me just to switch off my head and actually a lot of good things come when you take a step back it lets the 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 shit settle and what ends up there is what really matters maggie what about your own family how do they cope with this work that you do and the changes that it has? Yeah, they've been brilliant. But if I'm honest, my kids want me to take a bit of a step back. They'd kill me if they saw how many hours you know it, it actually takes. But they're right. They've been brilliant through the lockdown. I mean, my eldest son, he he rings every day. We've been going for a walk, and he rings me and he, right. What are you doing? And then I'll say, Oh, I've got a podcast, or I'm doing this. No. What are you doing, Mum? What else are you doing? You won't even, they've got my back and I've got some great friends, but I've I've neglected my life. I have neglected it. And you feel a bit guilty.
3: So you're you know, not going on any of this celebrity dancing or celebrity climbing a mountain
1: or the SAS? <laughs> I'd love to. Well, uh, the SAS, well, I love watching that, but I, I couldn't hack that. Uh-huh. When, when I did Celebrity Big Brother, and oh, I did brilliant, it. brilliant, by the way, in that. I, well, they didn't show much of what I said. I went on there thinking they wanted to hear everything. But when I came out, they told me that they couldn't get most of it through the legals. So, but I went on there to spread the word, to spread the message, to increase awareness. And and actually it was a good move because I reached an audience that didn't know who I was. So So you're not climbing Kilimanjaro? No, I I climbed Mount Kinabalu. It's in (laughs) in the book. (laughs) When when Norman died, I was in a, I mean, he was only in his 40s and I believe some things are meant to be. Norman died of bowel cancer and I was lost when he died because I'd been with him from when I was 20. You know, four kids and thought we'd live till we were 80 or 90 so when he died I was I was lost really I was very lost I was going back to the cancer hospital for a brew and because I knew all the research nurses really well one of them Julie said how you know how are you doing I said well I'm struggling to be honest I don't know what to do with myself so she she went away and she brought back this poster and she said I was thinking about you this week she said have a look at that and it was for a charity called beating bowel cancer which was what Norman died of. Right. The first day of the trek, 17th of June, 2006, and that would have been Norman's 50th birthday. The end of the trek was a year to the day after he died. And I thought, something's telling me to do that. And so I signed up for it. Me and the kids and my friends and work colleagues, we spent nearly a year, like fundraise, and it was a distraction. And then I went to Borneo and I went through the jungle and I climbed Mount Kinabalu, and it was phenomenal. Brilliant. Fact, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. You know what that taught me? It taught me the power of mind over matter because yeah. there was no way I was not going to get to the top of that mountain and it nearly killed me. But, you know, I, I want turning back. <laughs> When i left the police i went to india and, and i did a trip called spiritual india i like traveling and that's what's been neglected the last few years so next year i'm going to do another big trip a proper adventure trip somewhere i've never been and somewhere that's going to push me in, in my own life part of me would like to just walk away and forget about it
0: there are times where we think like you just love to chuck it all in and walk away but you can't I think if you just find balance in your life, it won't even be an issue because
1: you're so good at what you do. I'm kind of in a privileged position to make real, real changes for, not just for one person, but for, for generations to come. I
3: think you were born for this, whether you think you're or not.
1: <laughs> you know? The talking, I mean, I, I'd like to start my own podcast perhaps next year. It's giving people an opportunity to be heard is what, how I see it. No better woman. Thank you. I just describe yourself as that bloody difficult woman who won't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll oh, never you. know how many
3: people you've saved. Never.
2: We just
0: want to thank you, Maggie, for taking the time to do this podcast. We're really honored to have met you. So impressed with the work that you do. You are invaluable to this fight that we're all involved in for getting support and and the correct treatment for su- survivors of sexual abuse. You okay, were so appreciative of this interview and of your existence on the planet. Thanks so much.
2: Stay in touch.
0: Ladies. Absolutely. Bye.
1: Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel, or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information.
0: The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey, only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rushing it and there's no faking it. You have to feel it and just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Sisters at gmail.com.